You're listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. I'm going to ask Mike to come up and his son, David. Why don't you guys come up here? Um, you know, we've been telling you for a couple weeks now that we're having a new staff member come on staff with us. This is Mike Payne. He led us in worship. That was great this morning. Thanks, Mike. And I just want to pray for them and bless them. Just so you know, Mike has, has a wife and another son who remain back in Hungary. His wife will be joining us. Uh, she has a, her father is uh, ill right now and he's, he has cancer. So please keep him in prayer and keep, please keep her in prayer. So you'll be seeing her in the near future. But uh, I just want to welcome Mike. And uh, he found out that we had t-shirts and he asked about them. So I felt like this would be a good time to make it official and give you a, a Whitefields t-shirt. So welcome on staff. Yeah. And uh, would you guys please bow your heads with me and let's pray for them and bless them, welcome them. Holy Father, thank you for Mike. Thank you for David. Thank you for bringing them here to be part of this fellowship. Lord, thank you for the, the gifts and the ministry that you've given to Mike and his wife, Marika. Lord, we pray that you would bless them. Lord, we pray that you'd help them to get settled here in Colorado. And Lord, that being here would just be a, a, a wonderful experience for them, a life-giving, spiritually healthy experience, Lord. And Lord, we pray that you'd use Mike and, and Marika and their gifts here in the church, Lord, for the building up of your kingdom and, and for your glory. So Lord, we bless them in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Okay, this morning we're beginning a new series in the book of Jonah. So if you would please grab your Bibles and turn with me to the Old Testament book of Jonah. If you need a Bible to follow along, we probably got a few more in the back. You can put your hand up. We'll make sure you get one. If you like to read the Bible on your phone, then we encourage you to use the YouVersion Bible app just because if you go into the menu and click on events, you can follow along with these notes that are up on the screen, plus usually some extra stuff as well that you can see in there and you can take notes and share stuff. So it's just a great way to do that. Uh, for those of you who aren't sure where the book of Jonah is, I encourage you, you know, look in the front of your Bible. There's an index there, a table of contents. You can find the page number. Turn there. It's just next to Obadiah, if that helps. But if you, probably, if you don't know where Jonah is, you probably don't know where Obadiah is either. So anyway, those of you who are, have the phone, you got an advantage here because you just kind of scroll through until you find that thing, right? The story of Jonah is a story that everybody knows, but nobody knows in the sense that it's a story that everybody's heard, right? Everybody knows the story of Jonah, the guy who got swallowed by the big fish. Yet I think that few people really understand this story and why it's so important in the Bible and why it's so important for us today. The book of Jonah is one of the best places in the Bible where we can go to see what Christianity is all about, what the Christian message is and what Christianity is all about. It's a book which shows us God's heart for the world and what our part is in his mission. So we're going to begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from Jonah chapter 1, and then we're going to break it down and study it. So let's begin by reading Jonah chapter 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, 
What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give thought to us that we may not perish. And they said to one another, Let us cast lots that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. And they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? And where do you come from? What is your country? And of what people are you? And he said, I am a Hebrew. And I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them so. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, and the sea will quiet down for you. For I know that it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us the innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered vows and a sacrifice to the Lord, and they made vows. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for this story of Jonah. Lord, would you help us to understand it, help us to understand what it means for us and what it means, Lord, the picture that it is of Jesus in the gospel. Lord, we pray that you'd help us to see that. We pray that you'd help us to learn things from this text that we can apply to our lives. Lord, that we might walk with you, that we might bear much fruit for your glory. Lord, that we might live in the way that you want us to live and answer the callings that you put on our lives. So we pray that we would hear your word, that it would sink from our brains down into our hearts and that it would truly have its transformative effect on our lives. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever known that there was something that God wanted you to do, but you didn't want to do it? Maybe for different reasons. Maybe because it was hard. Maybe because doing so would necessitate you giving up something that you didn't want to get up, give up. But either way, have, have you ever known that God wanted you to do something, but you didn't want to do it? That was the case with Jonah. You know, our theme as, for the year as a church has been this theme of moving forward to what lies ahead. And, and we've been praying about what that means for us as a church as a whole. What are the next steps for us? We don't just want to uh, settle in where we're at. We want to keep pressing forward because we want to see all of God's dreams for us as a church fulfilled. But we've also been encouraging you to ask that question yourselves. Lord, what is my next step as your disciple? Some of you uh, are taking that next step. You're going to be baptized today. Others of you are going on a mission trip. We're going to be praying for our mission team next Sunday. Uh, for others of you, the next step might be the integration of your faith and your work. For others of you, it's going to be some form of generosity or service. For others of you, it's going to be an area of your life in which God wants to work. For some of you, the next step is actually to take the first step and to put down your yes and say, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I want to give my life to him. Here in the book of Jonah, we meet a man who uh, was called by God to do something that he didn't want to do. He prayed, Lord, what do you want me to do? What's the next step? How do I move forward to what's ahead? And then God told him, and he was like, uh, well, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, really, anything else, uh, I was expecting you to say something like, read my Bible more or, or be nicer to my mother-in-law, but I wasn't expecting this. I mean, I, I would have done those other things. That would have been fine, but this is too much. I don't know if I can do this. If you want me to do something else, I mean, I'll, I'll totally do it. I mean, probably. Hey, I can't promise anything, but I'll probably do it. See, the reason that Jonah's in the Bible is because we are a lot like him. And that's where we have to begin as we read this story. That we're a lot more like Jonah than we are unlike Jonah. That's the baseline understanding we have to have before we read the story. This story is two things. It's both a mirror 
and a window. It's a mirror which shows us what we, we look like sometimes. And it's a window which gives us a glimpse into God's amazing grace and, and a glimpse at his incredible love for us as well as his mission in the world and his calling on our lives. The title of today's message is Called to Go. And there are three important things that we see here in this first chapter that we can learn from. The first one is we see a confusing calling, a confusing calling. Secondly, we see how to find out what's really in your cellar. And thirdly, we're going to talk about calming the storm. So let's begin by talking about this confusing calling. It says in verse 1, the word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Now this phrase, the word of the Lord came to such and such a person. So the word of the Lord came to this person or that person. This is a technical Hebrew phrase. It's only found in the Old Testament, and it's only used in regard to the Hebrew prophets, the prophets of Israel. In other words, uh, it describes what their job was, what their calling was, and, and what their function was. They were to speak and communicate a message from God to the people. So this is why we read about almost every single prophet. The word of the Lord came to Isaiah. The word of the Lord came to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord came to Ezekiel. The word of the Lord uh, came to Zechariah, Zephaniah, even Samuel the prophet. It describes the function and the calling of a prophet to receive a message from God and then to speak that message forth for other people. So when we read that the word of the Lord came to Jonah, what that means is that Jonah was a prophet. In other words, that was his vocation. He was a prophet. That was his identity, his vocation, his ministry. It was, his, it was who he was. He was a prophet. In fact, he's even listed in the book of 2 Kings. You know where they list all the different kings and they list the different prophets? Well, uh, Jonah is listed there in 2 Kings as a prominent prophet who lived during the time of King Jeroboam II of Israel. We'll talk about why that's important in a second. Then it says in verse 3, so first of all, he's a prophet. That's his vocation, it's his identity, it's his profession. And then we read something interesting. It says that God spoke to him, called him to do something. In verse 3, then it says that Jonah ran away. Now, I want you to understand, but putting those two together, what this means is that this was not just a simple act of, of disobedience. This is a resignation. Jonah is quitting his job. This is his vocation. He's saying, uh, I don't want to be a prophet anymore. I quit. I'm done. I'm moving somewhere else. And so the question is, why would Jonah do that? Why would he give up this vocation, this calling? Well, it's because God called him to do something which he did not want to do. God called him to go to Nineveh. So Nineveh was the capital of the Assyrian Empire. Nineveh is actually, the ruins of Nineveh are still there. They're in uh, northern Iraq. They're still there to this day. According to ancient historians, at this time, Nineveh was the largest city in the world. It was somewhere around 600,000 people. We're going to talk about that more as we go through the book where we get that number. But it was around 600,000 people who lived in the city of Nineveh. It was the largest city in the world at this time. And God called Jonah to arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it for their evil has come up before me. Now Jonah would have been very surprised and he would have been very confused that God would tell him to do this for a number of reasons. I'm going to give you five reasons reasons why this was a confusing calling. Number one, it was extremely dangerous. So Assyria was Israel's biggest rival politically, militarily in the region. It was an empire that was also famous for its brutality. They were violent and they were known for their brutality. Historians and archaeologists attest to this. They tell us that the Assyrians practiced human sacrifices. They practiced torture They've even found uh, furniture, as they've excavated, they found furniture made of human skin. 
They found uh, pyramids built of human skulls. They, they found ancient drawings in Nineveh that show people's eyes being gouged out and hooks being put into their cheeks so that they can be led around like animals with these hooks in their faces. Probably the greatest parallel we have in our day to this would be ISIS. I mean, um, that, and here's what's really interesting. Nineveh is located in the modern-day city. Maybe you've heard of it. It's called Mosul, Iraq. Until very recently, Mosul was the largest city under ISIS control. So try to put yourself in Jonah's shoes. Imagine if God called you to put on your Bruce Springsteen, born in the USA t-shirt, and your Make America Great Again hat, and he called you to hop on a plane and go over to Mosul, Iraq, and gather up all the ISIS guys, and, uh, you know, just tell them, guys, Jesus loves you, but unless you repent of your sins and put your faith in him, you're all going to hell. And, uh, you know, who wants to sign up for that mission trip? It'd actually be probably one of the more affordable mission trips because you'd only need to buy a one-way ticket and you wouldn't have to worry about, like, food or housing or anything because you'd be dead, right? Like, so uh, another reason this was a confusing calling is because it didn't make any sense politically, right? From an Israeli perspective, this doesn't make any sense politically. Jonah lived during the time of King Jeroboam II, as I mentioned before. Now, this was a very prosperous time in Israel's history. See, during Jeroboam II's reign, uh, Israel was expanding its borders very quickly. You know, Israel reached its height as a nation under the rule of Solomon. And then after that, the kingdom split into two factions, the north and the south. And then they kind of went into a decline. Both sides did. But especially the north. They lost a lot of land. They got taken over. People attacked them. But during the reign of King Jeroboam, they did just the opposite. They started expanding again. They started getting stronger. They started becoming really an a important and powerful country in that region. And their biggest rival was the Assyrian Empire. But God calls them, rather than attacking Assyria, God calls Jonah to take them a message. And this message inherently has an offer of mercy in it. See, he tells them to go and call out against them for their sins and turn to him. But see, here's the thing. If they repent of their sins, inherent to this message implied in this is that if they repent, God will show them mercy and he will not judge them and destroy them. Now, that's not really in the best interest of Israel politically because if God were to destroy Nineveh and Assyria in judgment, well, that would leave Israel as the most powerful nation in the region and no rivals to worry about. So for Israel, that'd be great if God did that. But apparently, it would seem that God cares more about people than he does about politics. That's really important because I think that sometimes, you know, we can care more about politics than we care about people. So here's what's interesting. 40 years later, about 40 years after this, the Assyrians would conquer Israel and they would carry off the Israelites into captivity. See, if God had destroyed Nineveh, at this time, that never would have happened. But here's the thing. God cared more about the souls of the Assyrians and wanted to see them saved and shown mercy. Another reason why this was a confusing calling was because it just didn't seem fair for him to offer mercy to these people who deserve judgment. See, one of Jonah's hesitations in going to Nineveh, it'll become especially clear as we go on. One of his hesitations in going to Nineveh is he feels very torn about this whole thing. If there was ever a place that deserved God's judgment, it was Nineveh. I mean, I just mentioned a few things that the people there did. They're evil things. Jonah, on the one hand, he knows what God wants him to do. But here's the thing. If he goes and he does it, and they do repent, and they don't kill him, which I guess there's a small chance that that could happen, but it's still a chance, then 
That means that God isn't going to judge the Ninevites and the Assyrians for all the evil things they've done. Now maybe he thought, but you know, if I don't tell them about this offer of grace and mercy, well then they won't repent and then everybody wins, right? God will judge them and I just prefer that God would do that. He says, you know, if God forgives them though and he doesn't judge them, it just seems unfair. It seems like they kind of just get away with all the stuff that they've done with no repercussions. How is that fair? Where's the justice in that? I think a lot of people feel this way about uh, about forgiveness. This is one of the reasons why people hesitate to forgive others. Because they feel that if they forgive somebody who has hurt them or sinned against them, it's almost as if they're letting that person get away with it. It's almost as if they're saying that what you did was, was no big deal, that, that it was fine, that it, it, just don't worry about it, you know? That, and, and the fact is that it was a big deal. And they say, well, I, that's why I'm hesitant to forgive. I feel like I'm, there's no justice in that. I feel like the person's getting away with it. One of the great promises of the Bible is that God is just. And even if we don't see it in our lifetime, there will be justice. Because nothing is hidden from his eyes. And God will deal justly with every person and with every hurtful action and with every wrongdoing. But then the Bible also says that for those who turn to the Lord, he will give them mercy. And this kind of creates a problem. In fact, it's one of the biggest kind of problems or tensions that's created in the Old Testament. Because here's the thing. The definition of justice is giving someone what they deserve. And on the other hand, the definition of mercy is not giving someone what they deserve. Do you see the problem there? So think about this. These two things are diametrically opposed. Like, by definition, if you show someone mercy, you are not acting justly. There's no way around it. I mean, it's the definition. So if the Ninevites do repent and God has mercy on them, isn't that in a way a travesty of justice? That they did all these terrible things and then they're not going to be judged for them? And so part of what makes this calling so confusing is that it brings up this question, which again, like I said, a lot of the Old Testament seems to be wrestling with this question. How, how can this be that God is both just and merciful at the same time? Is God just? You know, this is what the Old Testament writers are kind of struggling with. But is God just? And they'll say, yes, God is just, absolutely. Uh, but is God merciful? Oh yeah, definitely. God is merciful to those who turn to him. But the problem is that by definition, those two things are opposed to each other. We're going to talk about that more in just a minute. Another reason why this was a confusing calling is because something like this had never been done before. So God had called the people of Israel to be a light to the nations. And, and what that meant in large part was that God gave them his law. He shaped their culture. He told them that he wanted to be, them to be a worshiping people who worshiped him and followed him. And as a result, they lived in a way that was so different and so wonderful and so good that other people, other nations of the world would look at them and take notice of who they were and the way that they lived and they would want what Israel had and they would want to know Israel's God. You could call this an attractional model to relating to other people, right? So it's the attractional model. Jesus talked about this himself. He put it this way. Let your light so shine before other people that they will see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. He's talking about the attractional model. Let other people see your life, see how you live for God, so that they will glorify God as a result. In other words, love God, worship God, let your relationship with God be so vibrant, so life-giving, so that people will desire what you have, and they'll say, I want what he has, I want what she has. That's the attractional model. Now, for a long time in, in the history of Israel, this was the way that they related to other nations and other people. And to a degree, 
it worked. I mean, it says in the book of First Kings, for example, that in the time of King Solomon, the queen of Sheba, which is in Ethiopia, she sent a delegation to Israel to find out more about their practices and their religion and their God and who they worshipped. And there are, even to this day, Jewish Ethiopians who trace their heritage, their Jewishness, all the way back to the Queen of Sheba and her trip to visit Solomon. And in fact, I've met some of these Ethiopian Jews. And also, another thing you should know about them is that many of them became Christians uh, around the time of Jesus in the centuries afterwards. Another thing that Israel did, God told them, build a city. And this city will be called Jerusalem, which means the city of peace, the city of shalom, the city of harmony. And here's what the names that Jerusalem was given. It was called the joy of all the earth. And it was called the dwelling place of the name of God. In other words, if you want to know God, if you want to meet God, then you need to come over here and you can meet him. It's the attractional model. But see, now God is doing something different with Jonah. God is calling Jonah to do something different. He's calling him to go, not not to attract, but to go as a foreign missionary to another country. And, And God gives him a message that he wants him to give them. Rather than being attractional, this is a new model. We could call it the missional model, right? So rather than waiting for people to come to you, you go to them. Jonah was the first missionary, but he certainly wouldn't be the last. So let me ask you this, which one is better? Because people argue about this all the time. Should churches be attractional or should churches be missional? The answer is they should absolutely be both. How about you and me as individuals? Should we be attractional or should we be missional? It's not an either or, it's a both and. We need both. See, Jesus said to his disciples, You are the light of the world. A city set on the hill cannot be hidden. Let your light so shine before men that they see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. But in the very same breath, you know what else he said? He said, you are also salt. You are the salt of the earth. And the thing about salt that's different than light, right? So light can work from a distance, but salt doesn't. Salt has to be right up there in it, right? Salt only works when it's rubbed up, rubbed up against something. It has to be in close proximity. And these two metaphors, salt and light, they are a picture of the ways that God wants, us, wants to use us in the world to share his love and to share the knowledge of him and his truth with, with people. So on the one hand, we're called to be attractional, drawing people to God by the way that we live and, and ab- as they observe how the gospel changes our lives and makes us unique and different. It gives us different values. It gives us a hope that no one else has, even in the midst of whatever trials or difficulties life might throw at us. But on the other hand, we're also called to be missional, which means that we're called to go. Jesus was the ultimate missionary. He left his home. He went to a foreign land called by the Father. And Jesus said, just as the Father sent me, so now I also send you. And he said, I want you to go. Go into all the earth and preach the gospel. Go and make disciples of all nations. Go into all the earth. And I want you to be my witnesses. Tell the whole world who I am and what I've done in your life. First nearby and then then a little bit further out and even to the ends of the earth. You see, salt has an effect only by getting up close, having close proximity, by making direct contact. Now I want you to ask yourself this, what would it look like for you to be salt and light, both of those things? What would it look like for you to be salt and light in your workplace, in the relationships that you have? You know, again, as a church, I said we want to be both of those things. We want to be attractional, 
right? So we want people to be able, we want to say to people, come here and learn about God. Come here and worship God and meet God. We want to be attractional. We want to create also another way that we're attractional. We want to create a community of people who live so differently. People who, whereas the world is tearing down, people who build up, people who love God, people who love each other. It's a passionate, engaged, spiritually healthy Christian community where people show each other grace, where we build each other up. But at the same time, we don't just want to be attractional. We also want to be missional, right? So we want to take the gospel out of these walls to people wherever they're at. If they're not going to come in here, we're going to take it to them, right? That's why we do things like our, our big Easter outreach. That's why we do foreign missions. That's why we do our radio ministry. That's why we have booths set up at festivals here in town so that we can meet people who live here so we have an opportunity to talk to them, build a relationship with them, and share with them the hope that we have because of Jesus Christ. And again, if you want to be part of that, we have tons of opportunities, and I really encourage you to do that because, again, attractional and missional, salt and light, so along with doing that as a church, again, we, we encourage you to do those things on an individual level as well. For Jonah, though, understand, this was completely out of the box. This, this wasn't a paradigm that he had. Nothing like this had ever been done before. So that's why it was a confusing calling. The, the, the last reason that I'll point out to you as to why this was so confusing is because he just didn't want to do it, right? And Jonah didn't like the Assyrians. He didn't like their culture. He thought that they were just a terrible group of people, and he didn't want anything to do with them. And at one point on, later on in this book, Jonah says to God, listen, God, if you're not going to kill them, then please kill me. Like, I'd, I'd rather die than live in a world where people like this are, are also believers. In other words, what he's saying is, if, if these people are going to be in heaven, then I'd rather be in hell. You know, sometimes I hear people say things like this. You know, God will never call you to do something without giving you the desire to do it. Are you sure? Because I, I just read about a guy, who, that's exactly what happened to him. Or, you know, if, if, if I don't want to do something, well, then I guess that means that God isn't calling me to do that thing. Well, here's a whole book of the Bible about a guy who was called to do something and he didn't want to do it, right? So I, I'm not sure that's the case. Think about this story and then ask yourself this. Is it possible that God might ever call you to do something hard or, or even, even dangerous? I think the answer that this book shows us is, Absolutely. Absolutely. Sometimes he might do that. He could do that. But here's the thing I want to point out to you about that. The reason why Jonah didn't want to do what God wanted him to do was because he didn't see Nineveh the way that God saw Nineveh. You understand that? He didn't see the people of Nineveh the way that God saw them. As people he had formed in their mother's wombs, people he created, people whom he loved. Even though they were doing all these terrible things, God desired to show them mercy and bring them into his family. He desired to turn them away from their sin and redeem their lives. See, if Jonah would have seen the Ninevites the way that God saw the Ninevites, then he would have been open to what God was calling him to do. And that's really one of the big lessons that God teaches Jonah here in this story. And it's an important lesson for us as well. So I, I challenge you to ask yourself this. What are the areas of my life where my values are out of alignment with God's values? Where I'm not seeing things or thinking about things the way that God sees them and thinks about them. So this brings us to the second major thing that we see in this story, and, and I call it this, how to find out what's really in your cellar. Now what I mean by that is this, C.S. Lewis in, in Mere Christianity has this point where he says, if you want to find out if there are rats living in your cellar, there's only one way to do it. You have to surprise your cellar. 
right? If you want to find out what's really living in your cellar, you have to surprise your cellar. In other words, if you go to the cellar door and you make a bunch of noise, you stand at the top of the cellar and say, I'm going down in the cellar, and you make a bunch of noise, opening the door, flipping on the light, you know, pounding on the stairs as you go down, you can get down there, you're not going to find anything. Everything's going to look just fine. If you really want to know what's living in your cellar, you have to surprise it. You have to throw the door open, go down there, jump down the stairs with a flashlight, and then you'll see all the creepy crawly things, right? The snakes and the, the cockroaches and the rats and the mice running around and scampering around in your basement or in your cellar. But here's his point with that, by the way, is this. Our hearts work the exact same way. If you really want to know what's living in your heart, the way to find out is by those things in your life that you don't expect, that you're not prepared for, is by surprising your heart, you know, shocking it, flipping on the light when it's not expecting it, catching it by surprise. We see that principle here at work in two different ways in this story. First of all, we see it with Jonah, but secondly, we also see it with the sailors. Okay, so first when Jonah is called, this is like a complete surprise to him that God is calling him to go to Nineveh, and, and it just reveals what's going on in his heart. It reveals that he doesn't share God's heart for people. He doesn't share God's heart for the Ninevites. He doesn't love them. He doesn't care about them the way that God does. It also reveals what's in his heart towards God. He flees from the presence of the Lord. It says that twice here in the first chapter. Now that's kind of silly, right? Like how do you flee from God? If God's everywhere, he's omnipresent, then how are you going to flee from somebody who's everywhere? Like anywhere you go, he's there. Understand, he's not fleeing him locationally. He's fleeing him relationally. He's fleeing from relationship with God. He's fleeing from what God is calling him to do and, and what God's calling him to be. He decides that he's going to go to Tarshish. Now, Tarshish is in modern-day Spain. Now, remember, God called him to go to Iraq, and he went to Spain, which at the time was, they didn't know about the New World, right? Like, that's as far as you can literally get geographically from where God was calling him to go. So he goes down to Joppa, which is the port town, and there just happens to be this boat that's leaving for Tarshish at that very moment. I mean, we don't believe in coincidences, right? I mean, if there's a boat there, and this is exactly what I was thinking, I mean, maybe this is God, right? What a coincidence. Can you believe it? The exact city he was thinking of going to, and there's a boat waiting to take him. I'll tell you this. If you want to run away from God, there will always be a ship ready to sail and take you away. Don't think that just because you can do something means that you should do something. Don't just think that because something is available that it's automatically from the Lord. Not every opportunity that comes your way is from God. And just because you have an opportunity doesn't mean you should take it. Maybe some of you can relate to Jonah. Maybe you have been running from God. Here's the thing that you need to see. God doesn't let Jonah get away. God pursues Jonah. And the final verse of this chapter, here's what it says. The Lord appointed a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. In other words, Jonah ran away, but God chased after him. God pursued him. And this is the great theme of the book of Jonah, that sinners run away from God, but God pursues them. It's not just Jonah. We see it with the Ninevites. God is pursuing the Ninevites. They're wicked, terrible Ninevites who've turned their backs on God. But God is pursuing them. He's loving them. He's seeking them. He's not giving up on them. He's not saying, hey, well, if you guys ever think about it, maybe you want to hang out with me or something. I'll be here. You know, you just, uh, whatever, I'll just leave it up to you. No way. God says, I'm pursuing you. I'm going after you, even if you're not going after me. This is the kind of God he is. He's a God who loves us so much. He doesn't just leave us to our own devices, but he pursues us, even if we run from him. If you've been running from God, know this. 
You haven't created any distance between you and him at all. He's right on your heels. In other words, he's ready. When you turn around, when you're finally ready to turn around and turn back to him and embrace him, he will be right there ready to embrace you in that moment. You see, when the sailors, when they, they also kind of have that light flipped on, they're surprised, right? In their hearts. The storm comes, and what do we see? We see them praying. Now, I don't want to make too much of a generalization on this, but I mean, sailors are known for a lot of things, but... Praying isn't usually one of them, right? And so here we see, though, that faced with this storm, these sailors start praying. Mark Twain, the American writer, he was an outspoken atheist. He was an outspoken critic of, of, of Christianity. He did not like Christianity. He often wrote against it. He, he basically spoke and wrote about how Christianity was a religion for the weak-minded and superstitious people. But what's really interesting is that towards the end of his life, one of his close family members was sick, and in one of his writings, he admitted, to his own dismay, he says, I found myself praying like a dog, like a coward, but I prayed. You know what that means? This man who is an atheist, he didn't want to admit it. He felt embarrassed that he had done it, but here's the deal. Storms in our lives, difficult situations, crises, you know what they do? They reveal what's really in our hearts, and here's what's really in our heart. Deep down inside, we are God believers and we are God needers. In other words, we know that there is a God and we know that we need Him. And in our day-to-day life, it's, it, it can be easy to pretend that we don't. But when it really comes down to it, when the light's flipped on, all of a sudden in our hearts, that's the truth. All of us know that we need God and we know that He exists. So one of the things that's revealed again about Jonah's heart is that even though he's a professional prophet, even though he's a religious guy, there are areas of his life which are, not, which are off limits to God, where he says, God, you can go in uh, these parts of my life, but not this part. Now, I don't want you to miss this, because I think this is really one of the most important parts of the story. Who's the bad guy in, the story of, in this story? Well, um, who's the fool? Who's the messed up person? Well, it's not the heathen sailors. I mean, look at these guys. They cry out to God. At the end of this chapter, we see them worshiping God and making sacrifices to God. And it's obviously not the Ninevites because when they hear that they've sinned against God, they tear their clothes and they repent and they turn back to God. Even the fish obeys God. The only person in the story who doesn't obey God is the religious guy, the preacher, the prophet. And what that means is this. It means that you and me, we're supposed to pay attention here. Because what it means is this. It's totally possible for you and me to be just like Jonah to be a moral person who goes to church and maybe even serves in some capacity. That's Jonah. He serves. He's a prophet. A committed believer. But there were areas of his life that were off limits to God. And it took a situation like this to reveal what was really in his heart. When God tells Jonah to go to Nineveh, Jonah runs in the opposite direction. Jonah's essentially saying, God, look, there are parts of my life that you're welcome to. There are areas of my life that you're welcome to speak to me about and speak into. But there are other areas of my life that you're not welcome to, and I don't want to hear anything about it. He's showing that God doesn't have lordship over all of his life. And so let me ask you this. Are there areas of your life that are off limits to God? Are there certain things which you won't let him speak to you about or change or mess with in your life? See, Jonah, he was, he was a moral, upstanding person. Like, he wasn't addicted to meth. He wasn't out robbing gas stations. He wasn't out stealing cars. Uh, you know, he... On the outside, he looks squeaky clean. You would never know that anything's wrong. Like he's a religious guy, servant, he's a prophet. 
But on the inside, that's, the problem was on the inside. It was in his heart. See, what Jonah needed was not just to clean up his life. What he needed was to be converted in his heart and his soul. Even though he was a religious person, he needed to be converted. Do you see that? He needed God to do a work of transformation in his heart, in the very core of his being. And if we miss that, we miss the point of the story. Let's talk about this final part, calming the storm. The grace of God in Jonah's life came in the form of a storm. I'll say that again. The grace of God in Jonah's life came in the form of a storm. You know, it's true of so many of our lives. Sometimes God does his most profound work. Sometimes his greatest grace in his life comes, or in our lives, comes in the form of a storm. Uh, Metaphorically, right? A crisis or a difficulty. When storms come, we almost always ask the question, why God? Why are you letting this happen? Well, here's in the story of Jonah, we see, why is God letting this happen to Jonah? Because he loves him. Because God wants Jonah. Because God wants to do a transforming work in Jonah's heart. So when the storm comes up, Jonah's asleep, and they wake him up, and they start asking him questions about his identity. Who are you? What do you do? Where are you from? And he says, I'm a Hebrew. I worship the God who sent this storm. And, and he tells them there, I, I, he told me to do something, and I ran away from it. That's the reason why this storm has come. I'm running away from God. And he says, guys, look, I mean, sorry. Th- this isn't about you. God's not after you. He's after me. And he says, so, so just throw me into the waters of God's wrath so that you can be saved. I'll take the wrath so that you can be saved. What's Jonah doing? He's not just sacrificing himself for these men. He is doing that, but he's doing something else, which is perhaps more important. What Jonah's doing is he's finally surrendering to God. He's finally saying, okay, God, whatever you want me to do, I'll do it. No more resisting, no more running, no more excuses. I will completely surrender to your will and your lordship over my life, no matter what the cost. And the sailors are like, no, man, we don't want to do it. We don't want to do it. It says that they started throwing cargo. They tried to to row back to shore, and then they realized it's not going to happen. Finally, they throw Jonah overboard, and the storm stops, and it becomes completely calm. And then it says that they turn and worship God. You'll notice this about Jonah everywhere he goes. Everybody turns to God, not because of him, but in spite of him. Like, he was the very worst missionary ever, and yet, he was one of the most effective. God used him in a great way, and I think that's encouraging, because, you know, it means this. You might just be, like, the worst at, like, telling people about Jesus, but you know what? He can use guys like Jonah, okay? That means he can use you, too. Jonah surrendered himself to the will of God, no matter what the cost He had no idea how it was going to work out, but he avails himself completely to the will of God and he lets them cast him overboard. And as they do, the storm is calmed. But the the, both the literal storm and the medical, metaphorical storm going on inside of Jonah's heart and mind. He clearly thought he was going to die, and we'll see that in the next chapter. In chapter two, he wakes up and he's like, Whoa, I totally thought I was going to die. Like, I can't believe I'm still alive. That God would show me that much grace. Why is Jonah alive? He certainly doesn't deserve to be alive, does he? Why did God give Jonah a second chance? Years later, Jesus was speaking to a group of Pharisees. And they were asking him to prove his claims that he was the Messiah. They said, how are you going to prove that what you're saying is true? You're the one who God sent to be the Savior of the world. And Jesus said this, I'll give you one and only sign. It's the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was in 
the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights. So the Son of Man will be in the heart of the earth for three days and three nights. Then he said, Behold, the one who is greater than Jonah is now here. Who's Jesus talking about? Who's the one who's greater than Jonah? He's talking about himself. He is the true Jonah. See, what happened to Jonah is a foreshadowing of who Jesus would be and what Jesus would do. He, Jesus, is the one who was cast into the true storm of God's wrath in order that we might be saved from the storm that we created. He took what we deserved in order that we might be saved. Earlier I mentioned to you this. I said one of the greatest tensions of the Old Testament. It's an unresolved tension. How can it be that that this is how it works? This question that God is at the same time both just and merciful because those two things seem to be absolutely contradictory even by definition. If justice is giving someone what they deserve and mercy is not giving someone what they deserve, then if God shows mercy, isn't he being unjust? And yet the Bible says that God is both. He is both just and merciful, perfectly just and radically merciful. Isn't that a contradiction? How can this be? And the answer is this. The answer is Jesus. You see, the reason that God can be both just and merciful is because of Jesus, because he took what we deserved so that we could have mercy. And and this gives us a new word, which is grace. Grace is getting something which you don't deserve. And that's what Jesus did for us. See, in Jesus, in Jesus Christ, the judge of all the earth came to the earth and took our judgment himself so that we could be saved. It was the ultimate act of grace. He was the ultimate missionary who left his home, went to a foreign land, to an adversarial people, to follow a calling, to do something very difficult. And he submitted to the will of God even unto death. And on the third day he rose again, conquering over death so that by him, we might have everlasting life. That is the good news of the gospel. That's the good news of Jesus Christ. Let me tell you this. Because of who he is, because of what he has done for you, you can confidently do what Jonah finally did at the end of this chapter. You can stop running from God and you can embrace God's will for every area of your life because you know that he loves you with perfect love and perfect love casts out all fear. Amen? Let's stand and pray. Lord, we thank you for this story of Jonah. And we pray, Lord, that you would help us, that in the story of Jonah, we would see ourselves. We would also see, Lord, how much you love us. Lord, we pray that we would see this. We would see what you have done for us, that, Lord, you were cast into the storm of the Father's wrath so that we might be saved. Thank you for that, Lord. Thank you for your mercy and your grace in our lives. But thank you that you are the just God And yet you show us mercy and you show us grace because of Jesus. Lord, help us that we might cling to that and trust in it and rely upon it. And Lord, as we we move and do these baptisms next, Lord, we, we are excited for this symbol of just that, of death and rebirth in Jesus. Lord, I pray for all of us you'd help us as we go about this next week to keep these thoughts in mind, these things that we've read and you've spoken to us through this text. Lord, reveal what's really in our hearts that we might align ourselves with you and that we might do what Jonah said. I see that you love me, Lord. I see that you're gracious and merciful to me. Therefore, I give my life to you. We pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.